Welcome to Murder Minute, your daily dose of true crime. On today's episode, the story of Mary Vincent. But first, your true crime headlines. The parents of a murdered University of Utah student have filed suit, alleging that the university did not do enough to protect their daughter, who had complained to police more than 20 times about her ex-boyfriend. 21-year-old Lauren McCluskey was shot and killed last October by Melvin Rowland, a 37-year-old registered sex offender who she had met two months earlier at a bar where he was working as a bouncer. He lied to McCluskey about his age and his name, and the two began dating. After about a month, she discovered his real identity and broke things off with him. He began stalking and harassing her, which she reported to university police on several occasions. He then confronted her outside of her residence hall on October 22nd, shooting and killing her before fleeing the scene. Police tracked him down a few hours later, and he killed himself as they moved in to make an arrest. Lauren McCluskey's parents are suing the university for their daughter's wrongful death, which they believe could have been prevented if the university had acted with more urgency to address her stalking complaints. Speaking to reporters, McCluskey's mother described the lawsuit as a last resort after many failed attempts to get the university to take responsibility and address deficiencies in safety procedures. Jim McConkie, an attorney for the McCluskey family, stated that Lauren's death was preventable and the murder occurred because of the University of Utah's repeated failure to respond to Lauren's multiple and continuing pleas for help. An independent review was highly critical of the university's handling of the case, finding that the university police did not take McCluskey's complaints as seriously as they should have. An Idaho Falls woman was murdered by her boyfriend last week, and authorities are struggling to understand the motive for the crime. Kaylin Blue failed to report for her job for two consecutive days, so her co-workers requested that the police perform a welfare check on the woman. When they arrived at the house that she shared with her boyfriend, Philip Schwab, and his mother, Schwab answered the door. He told them that his mother was out of town and that he had stabbed his girlfriend to death, and he showed them the backyard flower bed where he had buried her body. In a nearby garage, police found the woman's two dogs, also stabbed to death. Investigators believe that Blue was killed sometime late Saturday or early Sunday by Schwab, who has no history of violent behavior. Over the weekend that he killed Blue and her dogs, he posted hundreds of cryptic status updates on his Facebook page, with some of them making reference to the crimes that he is accused of committing. Schwab told a judge that he intends to plead no contest and does not want a public defender. He is being held in jail without bond. A 29-year-old Illinois man was convicted of the June 2017 murder of Yingying Zhang, a Chinese scholar who vanished two months after arriving to the United States to pursue a doctoral degree at the University of Illinois. Her killer, Brent Christensen, was a graduate teacher and doctoral candidate at the university. Christensen was fascinated with Ted Bundy and had admitted to a university counselor in March of 2017 that he had fantasized about abducting and killing someone, but then told the counselor that he did not have those kinds of thoughts anymore. 
A month later, he started visiting an internet forum called Abduction 101, where he participated in discussions about planning the perfect kidnapping. On that forum, he wrote of his plan to buy a duffel bag large enough to fit a body inside. When his girlfriend went on vacation in June of 2017, he purchased such a bag on the internet and began searching for his victim. Christensen encountered Zhang as she was on her way to sign a lease for a new apartment. City surveillance video shows her waiting at a bus stop as a black Saturn hatchback pulls up next to her. The vehicle was later identified as Brent Christensen's. He offered Zhang a ride, and she got into his car, never to be seen again. Christensen took Zhang to his apartment, where he strangled and raped her, then bludgeoned and stabbed her to death. He decapitated her and disposed of her body. The surveillance video led investigators to Brent Christensen, who admitted to offering Zhang a ride, but denied killing her. Without enough evidence to arrest him, authorities turned to Christensen's girlfriend, asking her to wear a wire. She agreed and was able to record him confessing to the crime. At a memorial service for Zhang, Christensen confessed to his girlfriend that he was responsible for Zhang's disappearance. He opened the notes function on her phone to type, it was me, she was number 13, she is gone forever. Yingying Zhang's body has not been found. After being found guilty, Christensen offered to lead investigators to her remains in exchange for not receiving a death sentence. His formal sentencing is scheduled for July 8th. The trial of 52-year-old Ashley Trail is continuing in his absence after he attempted suicide in the courtroom last week. Trail and his girlfriend, 24-year-old Bailey Boswell, stand accused of the murder of Sidney Loof, who met Boswell on Tinder and agreed to go on a date with the woman. Trail admits to disposing of Loof's body and her belongings, but alleges that she died during a consensual sexual encounter. Prosecutors are attempting to prove that Trail and Boswell planned the murder, presenting evidence that on the day of their scheduled date, Trail and Boswell purchased a meat grinder, tin snips, a hacksaw, bleach, and garbage bags before picking up Loof, whose body was found, cut into pieces, and discarded in trash bags spread over several miles of rural road. Last week, as a witness was leaving the stand after testifying, Trail stood up, shouted that Bailey was innocent, and then slashed his throat with a small knife. He was hospitalized with non-life-threatening injuries, and the jury was instructed to disregard his outburst. Bailey Boswell's trial is scheduled for October of 2019, and both could face the death penalty if convicted. Those are your true crime headlines. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app and follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's. 
So thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy! Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the incredible story of Mary Vincent, who escaped murder, but didn't get away in one piece. Mary Vincent grew up in Las Vegas, where her mother, Lucy, was a casino dealer, and her father, Herb, was a gambling machine repairman. Mary was an unhappy teenager, and had been rebelling against her parents, cutting classes, and running away from home. In the summer of 1978, when Mary was just 15, she went to Sausalito, California, where she lived with her boyfriend in his car. But when he was arrested for allegedly raping a high school girl, Mary left, at times staying with an uncle nearby. In September of 1978, Mary said goodbye to her uncle and decided to hitchhike to her grandfather's home, 400 or so miles south to Corona, California, near Los Angeles. Lawrence Singleton was a merchant seaman. Balding, middle-aged, and overweight, Larry was driving his van through Berkeley when he spotted a teenage girl with dark hair and her thumb thrust out. He pulled over. When Mary told him where she was headed, Larry, who was on his way to Reno, offered to make a considerable detour and drive her to Los Angeles. I've got a daughter about your age, he told Mary. She got in. Larry had a troubled family life. His wife Shirley had divorced him in 1971. Then in 76, Larry married Mary Collins, a nurse, but their marriage too fell apart after just two years. At the beginning of the summer, Larry had had a fight with his daughter, Deborah, a defiant teenage girl who resisted attempts at parental discipline, much like Mary. Larry Singleton's stories about his family seemed to put Mary at ease. She relaxed and lit up a cigarette, the smoke making her sneeze. Larry reached across and felt the back of Mary's neck. Let's see if you're sick, he said, pulling Mary toward him. Mary jerked away, irritated that he made a move on her so soon, and leaned away against the door. Larry then told Mary that he wanted to stop by his house near San Francisco on the way to pick up some laundry. Mary agreed to help, and when they arrived, was carrying bundles to the van as Larry began drinking from a milk carton filled with liquor. Back on the road, Mary, young and naive, drifted off to sleep. When she woke, they were way off course. A road sign for Nevada flashed by. They were heading in the wrong direction. The situation was clear. Reaching for a weapon, Mary found a sharp stick in the van and threatened Larry. I can take care of myself, she yelled, demanding to be taken to L.A. Turn around right now. Larry apologized. I'm just an honest man who made an honest mistake, he said. I'm not going to hurt you. Mary eased off, and they turned back toward Los Angeles. 
Soon after the sun went down, Larry Singleton pulled off the freeway for a break and followed a deserted road down a canyon, saying that he needed to go to the bathroom. Mary stretched her legs and relieved herself by the side of the road. When she bent down to tie her shoe, Larry attacked. He punched Mary to the ground, beating her senseless. Then, with one hand, he dragged her back to the van, slid open the door, and shoved her in. If you scream, he threatened, I'll kill you. Larry raped Mary repeatedly, tied her down in the back of the van, climbed back into the driver's seat completely naked, and drove on. A few miles down the road, they stopped again. Cutting her hands loose, he told Mary that he would let her go if she obeyed him. He handed her a cup of liquor. Drink it or I'll kill you. The drink made Mary woozy. Larry Singleton raped her again, and Mary passed out. When she came to, Larry took her out of the van. She pleaded with him, begging for her freedom. Larry forced her to lay on the edge of the road. Terrified, Mary listened as Larry walked back to the van and rummaged around. He came back with a hatchet. Grabbing her left hand, he said, You want to be free? I'll set you free. As Mary screamed, Larry Singleton chopped off her left arm. Then he cut off her right. Mary thought it would be better if she could only die. As Mary bled, Larry dragged her down an embankment. He stuffed the naked, screaming girl into a large concrete pipe. Now you're free, he told her. Then he left. Mary slipped in and out of consciousness for hours. When she finally regained her senses, she dragged herself out and rolled her severed arms in the dirt to coat the wounds and stem the bleeding. Mary struggled to her feet and stumbled up the embankment. After walking almost three miles, letting the sounds of the traffic guide her back to the freeway, naked, holding her wounded limbs above her head to slow the bleeding and keep the muscles from slipping out, Mary reached the road. As she walked along the road, a red convertible with two men inside slowed. She screamed for help. But once they got a good look at her, they sped off. Mary kept walking. It was morning now. Another car appeared. This time, it stopped. It was two women on vacation. They helped Mary, wrapping her wounds in towels. They rushed her to a nearby airport, and an ambulance was called. All Mary could muster were the words, He raped me. Mary was taken to a hospital. They treated her wounds, taking pieces of her leg to save her, but she would need prosthetic arms for the rest of her life. Police were impressed by her detailed recollection of the traumatic events and thorough description of her attacker. From Mary's description, a composite sketch was drawn, and Larry's own neighbor recognized him and immediately called the police. Lawrence Singleton was tracked down and arrested quickly. He denied the accusations, calling Mary a $10 a night whore. 
Larry told police that he hadn't done anything to Mary, that someone else had been in the car with them and they had done it, that Mary had threatened him by saying that if he didn't give her a ride, she would call the cops and say that he raped her. In court, Mary went into horrifying detail about her rape and mutilation. She pointed one of her prosthetic arms at Singleton and named him as her attacker. The court found Lawrence Singleton guilty of kidnapping, mayhem, attempted murder, forcible rape, sodomy, and forced oral copulation. But that was not the end of Mary's suffering. As well as her physical disability, the attack left her with a litany of mental health problems. This was made worse when Larry Singleton was only sentenced to 14 years in San Quentin, the maximum sentence at the time in California. The judge said upon sentencing, if I had the power, I would send him to prison for the rest of his natural life. Lawrence Singleton would go on to serve only eight years and four months of his 14-year sentence. Before being released, the doctor who conducted his psychological evaluation warned, because he is so out of touch with his own hostility and anger, he remains an elevated threat to others' safety inside and outside of prison. Nevertheless, Lawrence Singleton was paroled for good behavior. But the public outcry over his release forced him to move from community to community, and Lawrence Singleton ended up serving out his parole in a rented trailer on the grounds of San Quentin Prison. The outcry also led California legislators to pass tougher sentencing laws. He moved to Florida. Mary went into hiding, fearing for her life. Mary spent years battling depression, anorexia, and was diagnosed with PTSD, which caused relentless nightmares. Being a recluse made holding down a job difficult, and without steady employment, Mary struggled to afford her medical expenses, and she ultimately filed for bankruptcy. For years, she survived mostly off of donations and welfare. But Lawrence Singleton was arrested again in 1990 for petty theft. He served a 60-day sentence for stealing a $10 disposable camera in the spring of 1990 and later received a two-year sentence for stealing a $3 hat. He described himself to the judge as a confused, muddle-headed old man. After getting out of jail for a second time in the spring of 1997, a neighbor called the police to report that his neighbor, Lawrence Singleton, was assaulting a woman in his home. When police responded, they found the body of a woman. Lawrence Singleton had lured 31-year-old prostitute Roxanne Hayes into his home and murdered her. Lawrence Singleton, now 70, admitted to killing Hayes, who was the mother of three children. He said that after he drove her to his home in his van, they had sex, ate dinner, and then had a fight when she tried to take more money from his wallet than the $20 that he agreed upon. He stabbed Hayes seven times in the face and chest. Lawrence Singleton was found guilty of first-degree murder. In 1998, Mary Vincent, now 34, testified in the penalty phase of his trial. 
What happened in April of 1978? The prosecutor asked. I was attacked, she said. I was raped and my hands were cut off. How? He used a hatchet. What did he do with you? He left me to die. Alongside a drainage ditch on the road, yes. Was the man who did this to you Lawrence Singleton? Yes. Separated by 20 years and thousands of miles, two women were unrelated except their tragic meeting with Lawrence Singleton, he said, urging jurors to recommend the death penalty. When Mary Vincent got into his van, he chopped off her arms and threw her into a drainage ditch. Twenty years later, with Roxanne Hayes, he did the same thing. But unlike Mary Vincent, she did not survive. Roxanne Hayes, stabbed repeatedly, lingered into unconsciousness and died. The defense described Singleton as an honorably discharged Korean War-era military veteran who had lived a fairly productive, decent life for his first 51 years. They added, This trial is not a matter of vengeance for you to clean up California's mistakes of 20 years ago. Killing him would not be justice, but would demean us all. Lawrence Singleton was sentenced to death and died of cancer on death row in 2001. Mary Vincent is now an artist and is married with two children. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.